0: Every morning when I wake up, I look in the mirror and I see, I see that my skin is oily, that my eyes are still red with sleep. I see that my hair is nappy and my beard is unkempt. I look for beauty, but I see a man who is sometimes considered less than human. I see a man who has been homeless, who has been hungry who has slept on park benches and in apartments with no electricity. I see a man who has been the only black person in his entire world, who has been told he has evil in his eyes, that he is too loud, that he is too big, that he makes white people feel unsafe. I look in the mirror and I see a father and a friend and a magazine writer, I see a man who once worked 26 hours straight, fueled only by coffee, water, and a vape pen. I see a man who prays daily, who makes a list every night of all the things in his life for which he is grateful. His health, having a bed, a job, two children who are alive and beautiful. I look in the mirror, and I see a man with a past living among a people who have a past in a country that has a past. I see a man who, like the nation that birthed him, has, up until today, always looked toward the future, always pretended the past isn't there, or that it doesn't matter. But it is. And it does. And now, in order to go forward, I see a man and a country that has to face it. I'm Carver Wallace and this is closer than they appear. I don't want to talk about this, but I have to. A year ago, right after the election, we went out and we got passports for our kids. We didn't know if we would make it here anymore. I know people whose marriages have come apart since then, people who no longer speak to their siblings. Nazis are parading through public parks. We are a nation of 320 million people, and all we have in common is that we don't like each other. Beyond that, we don't know what to do, how to go forward, I personally don't know what to do or what we can do. So I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask a bunch of people, some prominent, some not so prominent from all over the country, what we can do, what is the deal with our past and how can we have a future? I'm also going to go into my own past, to places I haven't been for 30 years, to the small steel town where I was raised to speak with the white woman who partially raised me. My Aunt B. (laughs) I'm not going to tell you the whole story of Aunt B right now. But I, I do want you to think about this one thing. Who or what is in your past right now that you need to face but aren't facing? And why not? See, because I have this theory that maybe this whole nation is just 320 million people who all need to talk with someone that they're afraid to talk to. So, I just want you to think about that. But, I'm not going to make you do it alone.
1: Hey, how you doing, Carvel? Good,
0: good good to hear you, man. So, I personally needed someone to help me work through all this stuff. And so, I thought, why not start with Mahershala Ali? How have things been? Oh, things have been good,
1: man. I I can't complain. Right? Yeah. Uh,
0: yeah, that Mahershala Ali, the actor, the Academy Award winner, one of the most beautiful people to ever walk the face of the earth. Uh, life is good. How about yourself? Very good. Good. Busy, but all, all with good things. So. Cool. And no people in my life, I'm not setting you up with Mahershala Ali. First of all, he's married. Secondly, you're supposed to be my girlfriend. So what the hell is that? Thank you. Um, anyway, he, like me, has been doing all this work In his own family. And his family, like mine, embodies a whole host of contradictions, the same contradictions that America's facing
1: right now. My mother is an ordained minister. I'm a Muslim. She didn't do backflips when I called her to tell her I converted 17 years ago.
0: Anyway, you probably remember this speech that he gave at the Screen Actors Guild Awards. Here's the part I'm still thinking about.
1: But I tell you now, we put things to the side. And I was able to, I'm able to see her She's able to see me. We love each other. The love has grown, and that stuff is minutia. It's not that important.
0: Now, when I hear that applause, I hear two things happening. One is people saying, oh, how beautiful. Like, this is so great. And the other is people saying, oh, good. He's not mad at us. Truthfully, I'd like to believe that we can all, in moments, be as full of grace as Mahershala is in this speech. But can we be that way as a country? Should we be? Is it safe to be? A lot of times, I don't feel like it is. At least not for me personally. I mean, how much grace should I be extending to someone I think might just want me dead? When do you feel like, in your own upbringing, you first became aware of race and racism in your life? Like, when did you first become aware of the darker, the uglier sides of that?
1: Huh. Um, that's such an interesting question because the way in which I. I sort of intuitively want to answer that question is is that I, I think I you're almost born with an awareness. Like you can't, when can you, when do parents, like as a parent, you have two children, mm-hmm. 12 and 14. Yeah. When could you say you actually started teaching them? I think we start educating our children very early on as far as like, who to watch out for, who to stay away from, who to trust, who not to trust, who you hand your child over to. Like Those things become these messages. And so I think we begin to uh, experience those things from from such an early age. And I think some people have very clear experiences. Like myself, I can remember a kid who I was hanging out with uh, quite a bit and um, who was a real close friend of mine. And then one time... I was about seven years old and I had, this is early, I don't know, this is like 83 or something like that. And we get, you know, uh, 80, 80, maybe 81, 80, something like that. But we get some messages on our answer machine, you know, answer machines are a, mm-hmm. a pretty new thing. Right. But like, you know, he was this kid, Mike and his sister and his sister's friend were on the answer machine calling me the N-word and kind of like joking around and giggling. Whoa. And my mom told me I couldn't play with him anymore. And that was, that was at that time, that was, I had a lot of fun over Mike's house. Like he had like, <laughs> you know, right, right. T- Coleco Vision right. <laughs> and like we would do sleepovers <laughs> and have cereal and eat all this crazy stuff and just have a blast and be up all night. But just something he said, that I couldn't really feel the full resonance of at that time. Obviously you're aware what the N word is from from a very early age, but um I think that right there really clued me in consciously that there was there was something that he could say to me or a white kid could say to me or a non-african american could say to me that would affect me but there really wasn't something that i could equally say to them to elicit the same response wow that that's where i i guess i could articulate that i or or we as a people were different cuz i couldn't i couldn't come back at a white kid right with an equal ends i just couldn't so right. and that way i felt inferior
0: because there's no history behind it. So like that right. that's the thing is cuz I think a lot of people are like, well, if you call me a honky, that's like the same thing or if you mm-hmm. but like it's it I I always feel like not really because it, there's not this whole history behind it. And in some ways that's the thing I think is so weird about being that age hmm. is that you're not just introduced to a situation you're suddenly introduced to generations upon generations yes. upon generations of meaning and you yes. don't know yet what it is and it's such so funny that you tell that story because I have the exact same story like hmm. literally
1: to a th- person so I'm, what was I'm, your I, relationship to the to the to the other person
0: so i'm in this small town called McKeesport Pennsylvania hmm. which is which is where i lived from ages 8 to about 13 okay and, and
1: how diverse was that community so curious, it
0: depends on outside. where you lived so mm. it was a, it was a steel town like blue collar steel mills kind of thing just outside of pittsburgh and it was uh my experience of it at that age like second third fourth grade was my group was all mixed up it was like Mm. a couple black kids a couple white kids i didn't even know what made us different it didn't matter we all we all jumped the same ramps in the alley next to my house so it was all good um and then there was this kid down the street named artie he's a white kid and for some reason i wasn't really allowed to go over artie's house that much but Mm. he was out and about and he was like one of the kids he'd ride bikes with us and He'd show us stuff. We'd take sticks or whatever. And he but he always was one of those kids who was a little bit edgy. He always had some deeper shit than we were. <laughs> you know what I mean? He was always trying to make a slingshot and like trying to turn stuff right, into weapons. Exactly. Let's kill
1: some birds. Yeah, exactly. I got some hollow tip BBs. <laughs> right. BB was, guns. So
0: Artie was a little on that extra shit, which we thought was cool, but also kept it a certain distance. Anyway. My dad, my, uh, my my uncle, who was partially raising me at the time, and this mm. is a story that I'll get into because it's actually complex. So I was raised partially by my uncle and the mm. woman that he married, who was a white woman from Connecticut, and they're okay. living in this small town. And at this point, I'm sure they're experiencing all type of race stuff that I didn't mm. understand. Mm. But my uncle— Because
1: of just taking you in or just because of them being a couple. Just being
0: an interracial couple in right, small right, town right. P- Pennsylvania in 1980, yeah, yeah, yeah. whatever. And so— For uh, sure. And so— uh, so my uncle tells me that he's walking through, he's walking down the alley behind Artie's house, and Artie had this little brother, whose name I forget, and uh, and the little brother saw him walking down the street, my my uncle like waved, it's a small town, kind of like waved at the kid, the kid's standing in the back backyard, and he just, the, the little kid just called him the N-word. Hmm. Just this like little kid, like a three-year-old, hmm. you know, said it like, the way my uncle described it, said it as innocent as can be, like he was just saying... Like, hey, friend.
1: <laughs> right.
0: But that that, right. that that word was so commonly used in their house that to that kid that didn't feel like anything. Right. So here's
1: a good adjective for you. Exactly. Yeah.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yes. Like he was just saying hi. And my uncle came home and he was livid. I mean, livid. Mm. And he told me that. And he said, You can't go over there and you can't play with Artie and blah blah blah. And we had this conversation about the N-word. And it was it it was the same thing. I was like, it's third grade, maybe fourth grade. And it was it was the first time I learned that there was this extra power, and the way that I knew it was my uncle gave me the following instruction. He was mm-hmm. like, "Look, when it comes to fighting, you should only fight to defend yourself. You should never pick a fight with anyone. You should never hit anyone first. You should never blah blah blah." And he had this whole rules of engagement about fighting. But then he was like, "Unless someone calls you the n word, then you hmm. can punch him in the face." <laughs> that was wow. Literally what he told wow! Wow! Me. And, wow! And that's how I knew that that was something different, you know, and. A few years after this, when I was in fifth grade, we moved to a part of town that was all white. And when I say all white, I mean all white. Like I was the only black person in my classes, in my neighborhood, on my school bus. It was really weird and really isolating. And it made me feel like something was really, (laughs) really wrong with me. I suddenly didn't know how to deal with myself, how to deal with white people, how to deal with black people, and yet I had to. The rules of engagement grew much more complex and opaque. I realize now that that's how it is for everyone, this whole country right now. So many people, so much fear and isolation, so much confusion about how to engage, so How do we work together? I've been thinking about group projects. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and okay. like when you're in college and you have to do a group project, mm-hmm. you got five people on your team and one of them is kind of an asshole and one of them is a little bit mm-hmm. of an overachiever and one of them is codependent and one of them is cool. And you have to figure out the whole you thing sound You sound have- like
1: you know this really well.
0: <laughs> <laughs> just saying. No, yes. no offense to anyone out there yes. who I work in a group project with. I'm just saying. I've been there. Yeah. And so uh, and so, you're trying to accomplish something together. Mm. And take that, but time's 320 million people. Yeah. I guess the question that I think is the one of the most important questions and the one that I don't have an answer to right now is like with all these people trying to figure out something together can we all do that? Like can this country go forward? Together?
1: I think if we I think if we start with our families, I think we have to embrace the diversity within our own families, huh. which I think becomes a school for embracing the diversity within our communities and i think those communities can it, i think it can grow out from there but you know there's people who are not accepted within their own homes you know children wives and i don't know if you can have if you can have some degree of toxicity within your own home and expect to step out into the world mm-hmm. and not handle the world in a less in in and a more impersonal way than how you deal with things within your own home. And I think that we have to to listen to our partners and our and our mates and and our loved ones in a way with with an openness. And we have to teach it. We have to teach it to our children because then they go off in school and they either practice supporting each other or in some ways oppressing each other or bullying and these things, these people grow up to be adults and they carry out those same things and those same habits, but on institutional levels, you know, on you know, and on in and Corporations and companies, and mm. it sounds corny, it sounds trite, but I think we have to just do a much better job of listening to each other and when you talk about larger groups of people, when you talk about Jews and muslims or or you know uh, Democrats and Republicans or whatever, like anyone we have to we just have to do a better job of of respecting um the other person, respecting the other culture, respecting the other the other point of view. Uh, and recognizing other people as humans first and foremost, and therefore valid. And right. so,
0: how do you teach your daughter, for example, to recognize the humanity of people who don't validate her right to be a human mm. being? Mm. Right. Like this is something that I, my kids, and I are re- we're, we're really in this mm. because my son, for example, this summer went to travel with his. He went, he spent two weeks with my dad in D.C. Yeah, I flew there mid-July. My dad, who converted to Islam in 1992. It was primarily Black. Lives in D.C., Um, working class situation outside of a D.C. area. uh, When he saw a white person... It was like an occasion, like it was like, Oh my god, look at that, it's a white person. (laughs) And then he spent a week with his mother's parents, his mother's white, with his mother's parents in Florida. When he saw a black person, it was really like, Oh wow, that's a black person. Right. (laughs) And so and this is a Bay Area kid kid who made this triangle this summer. So he saw uh, a lot of America. It's a big country. And he came back with some questions. Right. And, you know, his one of his questions that I think is a lot of our questions is just like, okay, so I'm in Florida, Dad. I saw four Confederate flags when I was in Florida. Whoa. In total. How long were you there for? A week. <laughs> so you were counting. Yeah, of course I was counting. I there, there are what? Trump supporters uh, around me. There are people I who I see flags, I see hats, I see I T-shirts, I see bumper stickers I'm of people who I know may have on some level Like either would like to or have voted for people or would support or don't mind if I'm attacked, Um, lynched, killed. I think that the people know what they're doing. They're directing it at me to make a statement and they feel like white is special. And and I don't know if everyone feels this, but I think they believe in white supremacy. How -hmm. do I see the humanity in those people? Like how do Mm -hmm. I or am I just turning myself into a sitting duck if I don't? You know, and I'm paraphrasing his words, but he's getting at an essential philosophical question. Right. Like, how, right. you know, like, how do you do that? What gives you the strength to do that or the clarity? And more importantly, how do you pass that on to your kid? Because no one that's, wants to be the first hard. person out there being turning the other cheek when people are out there killing people.
1: No, I, I think that's, that, that's, it's challenging. And I think you ideally want to raise your children to be critical thinkers. Mm. And so... I think you could teach your child, and I'm speaking as a black man who's had my own experiences. Yeah. Um, with profiling or racial profiling or what have you. Um, but I think that you can teach your child to be very conscious of how they behave around police. But also teach them that there are p- good police officers. Hmm you know and i think you could teach them that there are ones who who definitely abuse their power like mm-hmm. obviously like i I've, I've experienced it i i know mm-hmm. i have friends who experienced it mm-hmm. but i think it would be unwise to teach your child that every cop out there is is potentially gonna do you harm you know mm-hmm. um uh but i do think you have to build in that awareness it's your responsibility as a black parent to build in your awareness that you have to be very conscious, and so I think in some ways that is to say. And if you look at you know what you mentioned, if you you know you could see someone with a Make America Great Again hat, and and that hat for a black person begins to become synonymous with a Confederate flag, yeah. and a Confederate flag begins to it feels that means certain things to us you know and so the challenge i think for for me is to to teach my child who's a who's a woman at that a young a, a girl is to really emphasize her thinking of herself as just as good as equal as as and and prepare her to to be that as a black man i don't want to get lumped into the stereotypes of black culture. I don't think any black person wants to, Mm. and you want to be able to be looked at as an individual. That's true for Muslims. That's true for, you know, everyone. And so I think I would try to teach and try to live in a way that is, that sort of, um, embodies that example of, of, of really first, uh, embracing someone as an individual. And if they give me a reason to, uh, to think less of them, then allow them to give me that reason. Mm. But, but I'm on a first step to a person, um, uh, treating them with kindness and respect. What is
0: America's problem? Why can't we do this? You know what? Let's put America on the couch. Do a therapy session. Tell me about your childhood, America. You have these fantastical ideas about freedom and emotional ideas about equality, but they're not really working out. You've actually been really cruel and mean to all kinds of people, and you never want to talk about it or try to address it, and you get really mad when people bring it up. But then you can't figure out why you can't stay in a healthy relationship or why you keep dating assholes. Why you're having this big emotional breakdown right now. Why everything feels like it's falling apart. Imagine like that like I said America is on is on the couch. America is willing to receive advice. America has finally admitted powerlessness over its own ridiculousness and is like Merch, help us out. Tell us, oh, okay. <laughs>
1: tell
0: us, we're, t- we're we're taking advice from a lot of people. We're coming to you. What should we do? Well, this is
1: a bad start for America if they're coming <laughs> to me to fix their problems. So, but first of all, so let me just put that out there. But we can continue. So, what's the what am I here to fix?
0: Yeah. So they're so they just want to know we're we're struggling right now. We're 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 infighting. We don't know what our path. We don't know what our future is. Things are crazy. Uh, everything is falling apart what what advice what advice do you have for us what what should we do
1: i think and i think we have to do work in our own lives uh no matter how on point we may be to even do better and i don't think you can i don't think anyone gets to let themselves off the hook Mm -hmm. from that you know
0: yeah no i i uh there's something that i'm actually going to share with you which is that so you said that you were afraid before you did this interview Mm. And so was I. Like, I was yeah. like, you know, I had to like center myself. And then mm. I came in, it was late, and there was like some crazy traffic stuff. And so while we're getting hooked up, I, I decided to, you know, s- try to center myself to put my head down and do a prayer mm. and invite some kind of calmness. I went to a prayer that I always go to, which is the
1: prayer of St. Francis. Have you ever heard mm. this one? No. Oh. I don't. I may have, but please share it with
0: Here's you. how it goes. So mm. it goes, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Hmm. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, let me bring pardon. Where there is doubt, let me bring faith. Where there is despair, let me bring hope. Where there is darkness, let me bring light. Where there is sadness, let me bring joy. I ask that I may not seek to be consoled so much as to console. Hmm. Not to be understood, but to understand. Not to be loved, but to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life.
1: Beautiful. Right? Yeah. To that's check. beautiful. And centering. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of yeah. my favorites.
0: So I, uh, you can look it up. to the prayer of St. Francis. and
1: Okay. I felt yeah, like I was, I will.
0: Uh, yeah. And I just, uh, I figured you would appreciate that because no, me, I do because I I, I do at. the
1: same thing. I make you know I make a prayer. Like I made one real quick in the car, and it's just how you know it's how I have to respond to that and and feel like I I'm carrying some good energy yeah. in with me. So prayer for me definitely yeah. helps.
0: Fear and ego can run rampant in all of us. All of us, even me, even Mahershala Ali, Oscar winner and most beautiful looking man to ever walk the face of the earth. It can even run rampant in him before a friendly interview. So we have to do something personally to address it, to make sure that it doesn't make us behave in shitty and terrible ways. A lot of what I keep coming back to, though, is if we did this as a people, as a country, what then? What if we chose to address the fear and ego that runs rampant within us before we started acting out on each other? Is that even possible for us? Is that even possible for me? Next week, I try to figure that out. My guest will be Shireen Marisol Miraji. She's the co-host of NPR's Code Switch podcast, a self-described Persia Rican, and a person who has a lot to say about turning around and facing those fears. I don't want to talk about this, but I have to. In the mornings now, I look in the mirror at my face grown thick and old with age and my eyes that contain secrets that not even I fully understand. And I see that the past has a will of its own. That objects in the mirror are closer than they appear. Closer Than They Appear is the debut production of Jetty Studios. You can subscribe and listen in all the usual places and find full episode transcripts on our website at CloserThanTheyAppear.fm. After you listen, we'd love to hear from you. Write us a review on Apple Podcasts or find us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter at CloserShow. Our senior producer is Casey Miner. Our producer is Lacey Roberts. And our editor is Leela Day. Grayland Brashear and Paulana Lamonier run our social media and our associate producer is Meredith Hodnott. Our show is engineered by Mark Bain with mixing and sound design by Ian Koss. Music is by Antique Naked Soul. You can hear more from them at antique-music.com. Megan Jones runs our podcast operations and Jessica Wang is our senior video producer. Special thanks to Mahershala's assistant, Simone Leonora, to Mike dodge Weisskopf for recording Mahershala in L.A., and to NPR West for letting us use their studios. Jetty's executive producer is Julie Kane, and general manager is Kezar Kempwala. Until next week, thanks for listening.